Deep in the History is independent and proudly listener supported. Before we begin, I would like to thank my newest patrons who went to patreon.com slash deep in the history and pledged their support. I take a special delight this time because when I started my show, one of my dreams was to become a podcaster's podcaster, a show that hosts of shows I love would enjoy listening to. My newest patrons are from the amazing Gorilla History podcast and the hilarious Waffles and Mario talk about things. Adnan, Henry, Brett, and Waffles, my new historians, I salute you and thank you from the center of my being. I also wanted to take a moment to acknowledge someone who has supported the show since the very beginning and done nothing but encourage me. Jordan, the creator of the wonderful Twilight Histories podcast. If you enjoy our point of view sections, where you get to assume the role of great figures in history, you will love the alternate histories of the multiverse that Jordan and his very talented team of writers create. So definitely check out Twilight Histories. Consider this a foreword. As you know, this series Verses was the result of getting lost down an epic historical rabbit hole that began by trying to tell the tale of Julius Caesar. This required context, then said context required context of its own. And thanks to you and all of your support, it is becoming one of the most popular and well-received chronicles of the late Republic of Rome ever made. The incredible amount of research to get the details of every point of view in our histories as accurate as possible is a little overwhelming and very time-consuming. But as the rabbit hole keeps getting deeper, I've come upon a story, part of history, our story, that is so incredible that I knew it needed to be remembered properly in the modern era. And in bringing this tale from our past to life again, this episode has caused an evolution in my craft. This original script brings together my episodes, The Closing Ceremonies, The Gates of Hell, and Pyrrhus, The Last Hero, and then flows seamlessly into verses so that if you think back and recall those episodes, or after you have listened to them again, you will have a multi-dimensional view of the ancient Mediterranean world and how events, deeds, and people resonate across time, affects people's lives, and see it from many perspectives. The consequences of history, lore. Keeping my promise to you at the beginning of this series that it will be groundbreaking and change the game. Also, as you have noticed, these episodes are taking longer to create. I want you to know that I sincerely feel the desire and pressure to deliver you epic content as fast as possible every single day. For example, the original script of this episode was relatively short and could have been out months ago, but that would have been me releasing an episode without the authentic flavor and context that has been the essence of Deep in the History's success. I value your time, and our time together is special. It means more to me than I can ever put into words, and I take that responsibility very seriously. Bringing history to life, giving a future to the past is my calling, my passion, my one chance to make my mark on this world. Thus, I strive to make every episode a classic hit that you will enjoy forever, because that's exactly what you deserve. In addition, during this episode, you'll hear the words Gaul and Celt, Celtic and Gallic. Just know that they mean the same thing and refer to the same people. Consider that as we go forward. And with that said, this forward comes to an end. This is Deep into History, and I'm your host, Arjun Hundel. Recall that at the very beginning of Verses, the Eagles of Jupiter, a young Gaius Marius was told a tale by his mother Fulcinia 
about a Celtic raid that resulted in Rome's utter defeat, subsequent sack and humiliation at the hands of Brennus, the barbarian king. A harsh lesson so her young boy would realize why it was so very urgent for him to become a man and be able to defend the Republic and his family. The shiver that ran down his spine at the mention of the dreaded name, the sacker of Rome in 390 before the Common Era, was shared by every child in Italy. For mothers across the land would warn their children to behave, or else Brennus would come in the night to devour them. The king of the Sinones had reached the status of a terrifying demon and came to symbolize the essence of the barbarian threat. Yet elsewhere across Europe, his name inspired a very different reaction. It was a name of honor held in the highest regard. Brennus was a hero to his people. From Spain to the borders of Macedonia, the misty British Isles, to the lush lands of northern Italy, ancient Europe belonged to the Celts. Though ethnically and culturally the same people, they were not united. Instead, they were tribes, larger and smaller, with powerful tribes always eager to devour a weak neighbor and seize their land so that their tribe could expand. The survivors of these near-constant raids and invasions existed in poverty, in the gray areas that marked the border between powerful tribes, eking out a living on the poor soil, holding to their warrior ways, and always on the march in search of new lands. As we approached the year 279 before the Common Era, one such war broke out in Eastern Europe. The small and medium-sized tribes of Illyria and the lush valley along the Danube River were invaded from the north. Tens of thousands were displaced. More had died in the savage onslaught or been captured and made slaves. The survivors who had fought valiantly but in vain, carrying their weapons and their few possessions with sorrow in their hearts, abandoned their ancestral lands. A young prince of the insignificant Peruzzi tribe had just become king when his father had been slain in the battle to defend their homeland. His name was Brennus, named after the Brennus, who after sacking Rome for months, rigged the scales when the Romans agreed to pay to take his army of Sinones and leave them in peace. A sum of 1,000 pounds of gold had carefully been weighed on the barricaded Palatine Hill where the survivors of the mostly noble remnant of the free Roman populace held out against all assaults. When they brought the gold and it became obvious that the barbarians had rigged the scales, the Romans complained, and Brennus threw his broadsword onto the rigged scale, adding its weight, and said, Ve victus, woe to the vanquished, earning himself eternal fame and glory in the eyes of all Celts. Now, more than a century later, this Brennus, looked out on the sea of humanity that was the remnants of his tribe and every other small tribe in the region, the tribe stuck in the dreaded gray zone. And like a religious awakening it came to him. He suddenly understood why the druids of his tribe had declared his name to be Brennus on the day he was born. He had to unite them, turn them into a Celtic horde, an ever-growing army, rallying every displaced tribe they met along the way to... Where? Where to lead them? Rome, in lush and fertile Italy, lay far away, guarded by the formidable Alps, and the march there would mean constant warfare because they would have to pass through the lands of powerful and hostile tribes, with huge armies, mighty citadels in their hill forts, and able to launch ambushes on lands they knew every inch of. A long, bloody road with a very uncertain outcome. However, there was another, better way. In recent years, word had spread across the tribes of southeastern Europe 
that there were regular successful raids being conducted by warbands on the once all-powerful kingdom of Macedonia, a feat that had been impossible in previous decades because of a sophisticated network of small reinforceable forts, each fully manned with Macedonian heavy cavalry patrolling between them, along with a huge contingent of dreaded Indian war elephants. If the rumors of these raids were true, this could only mean that Macedonia was weak and unstable. And beyond Macedonia, just to the south in Greece, lay the richest treasure in existence, at the Oracle of Apollo in Delphi. Seizing that enormous fortune would not only make him the richest king in the world, but his name would ring out in the Celtic world forever, eclipsing even the legendary warrior king for who he was named. Powerful and charismatic, Brennus rallied the tribes to his banner and was declared their king as they marched southeast from Illyria, just north of Epirus, the area of modern Albania and Montenegro. Along the way, small scattered tribes kept joining his horde, which grew immense. And soon he came upon two other kings, leading groups of displaced warriors nearly as large as his own. When Brennus informed him of his plan and asked them to join him, the two kings, Bolgius and Serethrius, said that if the invasion of Macedonia was successful, they would take him as their war chief for the raid on Delphi. Thus, the Celts descended on the borders of Macedonia as three separate hordes, a total force of 200,000 warriors. They could not have picked a better time to invade, for Macedonia was weak and ruled by the most dreaded kind of ruler in every society in all of human history, a fail son. Enter Ptolemy II, eldest son of Ptolemy, Ptolemy I Sauter, king of Egypt, bastard son of Philip II and half-brother of Alexander the Great. As a young boy in the royal court of Egypt, the spoiled firstborn earned the name Seranus, which meant thunderbolt, because he did not think before he acted. If a thought popped into his mind, he would execute it without any thought of the consequences of his actions, and being the heir, he could get away with anything. He became sadistic and cruel, with every desire, every luxury in the world. The only pleasure he apparently received was in abusing, beating, and allegedly killing anyone he pleased. King Ptolemy saw what his son was, and knew that the kingdom he had fought for decades to control, the dynasty he had bled to be the founder of, would be lost in a few years if Seranus was allowed to rule. Thus he formally named his second son as his heir and co-ruler. Seranus, now a young man, fearing for his life, fled Egypt on a ship bound for Macedonia. The kingdom of Lysimachus, who he met in the epic episode The Closing Ceremonies. As Lysimachus's heir was married to his sister, Seranus was accepted as part of the royal court, and he immediately began scheming. I will cover this tale in an upcoming episode about the ends of the wars of the Diadochi, called Nicator, so I'll just scratch the surface of the infamous deeds he committed to attain the throne. Once at the Macedonian royal court, he began plotting. If anyone could ever be called a master of treachery, it is Seranus. Through rumors and whispers, he convinced the king Lysimachus to execute his heir, who he falsely accused of plotting a coup. And then, fearing the king's wrath if his plotting was discovered, fled with his sister and her two young sons, the heirs to the throne, to the court of King Seleucus I, who was campaigning in Asia Minor. There, he quickly earned a spot in the king's inner council by providing detailed information of Lysimachus's defenses and troop strength throughout his entire kingdom. 
giving Seleucus his heart's desire. Now old, all he wished was to die in Macedonia, his homeland that he had not seen since he left as an officer in Alexander the Great's army all those decades ago. With this priceless intelligence, Seleucus made his move, and the result was the ultimate battle of the wars of the Diadochi, the Battle of Choropedium in 281 BCE, in which King Lysimachus was killed, his army routed, and victorious, Seleucus took the name Seleucus Nicator, Seleucus the victor, for Macedonia lay open for the taking. After the battle, his army marched to the Hellespont, the narrow strait of water that separates Europe from Asia, and soon were across. Seranus, now a favorite of Seleucus, used his access to the king to assassinate Seleucus Nicator while he was praying to the gods in thanks that he would soon set foot in his homeland, literally stabbing the most powerful man in the world in the back. And immediately after, he fled to the Macedonian capital city of Pella. Once there, his first act was to kill his nephews while his screaming sister hugged them for they had run to their mother in fear. Then Seranus stabbed his horrified sister and claimed the throne of Macedonia as his own. This act was seen as brutal even in the exceptionally vicious era of the wars of the Diadochi. His new subjects despised him. When the news reached the forces that garrisoned the northern frontier forts, whose soldiers were loyal to the line of Lysimachus, they deserted their posts in droves. The paranoid Seranus had to keep every town garrisoned with his few loyal troops because he feared revolt everywhere. Thus the northern frontier of Macedonia was completely undefended. During his two-year reign before the arrival of Brennus and his allied hordes, Seranus was terrified that next door to him in the east, the most famous warrior in the Greek world, King Pyrrhus of Epirus, who we know well from my episode, Pyrrhus, the Last Hero, sat quietly watching events unfold, and Seranus knew that Pyrrhus would eventually come to take his cousin Alexander's throne. However, word soon arrived from the Greek city-states of Magna Graecia in southern Italy a plea to all the Greek kingdoms to send aid against a barbarian upstart nation, the Republic of Rome. Aid in the form of money, troops, and ships for a navy poured into Epirus. After the rulers of the successor kingdoms elected to arm Pyrrhus and dispatch him at the head of a powerful army to protect the ancient Greek colonies, Seranus saw his chance to be rid of Pyrrhus for at least a year, perhaps longer time he desperately needed to secure his usurped throne and build his strength. Thus he sent 8,000 veteran pikemen, phalangites, who fought in the Macedonian phalanx, to join Pyrrhus's army as Macedonia's contribution to protect the city-states. Yet by sending so many of his best troops, it made Pyrrhus smell weakness, and he asked for more. He told Seranus to send him 50 Indian war elephants, the super-weapon of the ancient world. Almost Macedonia's entire herd, a ridiculous request. Seranus, failsun to the core, agreed happily and sent them with all haste to Epirus. Pyrrhus didn't need them for his war. He had received 20 war elephants from the Seleucids in Asia for his battles with the Romans. Instead, he placed them around Epirus's already well-defended border regions, their awesome presence guaranteeing the safety of his kingdom while he was away and Macedonia's doom. A year later, 279 before the Common Era. Very early in the year, braving the cold winter, 
envoys arrived at the Macedonian capital, Pella, from the Dardanians, a large tribe that dominated the lands beyond the northern border. Their king wished to warn of the approach of a titanic barbarian horde. He offered an alliance. The significance of this, given the bad blood between Macedonians and Dardanians, was lost on the foreigner, Seranus. For the king of these perennial enemies to ask to fight alongside the Macedonian army should have warned Seranus of the magnitude of the threat posed by the Celtic horde quickly approaching his land. Instead of carefully considering his options, he instead called for the entire royal court to assemble and put on a pageant to display the power of Macedonia by displaying how opulently they lived. Each noble member of the royal court came dressed in their finest and heavily bejeweled. Seranus, sitting on the throne at the end of the marble hall, received the envoys dressed in white enameled armor, a functional replica of Alexander the Great, inlaid with gold, ivory, and studded with gems. He had already made it clear to his sycophantic advisors that he considered the Dardanians the same uncivilized barbarian trash as the approaching Celtic horde, arrogantly adding that it would be an insult to the honor of Macedonia to accept an alliance with them. The envoys of the Dardanian king gave an impassioned speech about the need for both their peoples to set aside their differences and offered a unified response to the mutual threat. They informed the royal court that their king had pledged to send 20,000 of his best warriors to serve with the Macedonian army, skilled and badly needed fighters, especially given that Seranus had sent his best troops and elephants to Pyrrhus, who was even now marshalling his forces at Tarentum to face the Roman legions at the Battle of Heraclea that we witnessed through the eyes of a necromancer. Without even pausing to consider, Seranus sneered at the envoys and said, the Macedonians were in a sad condition if, after having subdued the East without assistance, they now required Dardanians to defend their country. After all, he had for soldiers the sons of those who had served under Alexander the Great and had been victorious throughout the world. So the envoys returned home and told their king all that had transpired at Pella. So the king did the only thing he could do to save his people. He marched with his warriors and swore loyalty to King Brennus, whose ranks now swelled to 120,000 warriors. And crucially, the Dardanians' knowledge of the geography and lay of the land in Macedonia was priceless. Brennus and his two allied hordes reached the northern border of Macedonia separately dozens of miles between them, approaching from different directions. Bolgius in the west, Brennus in the center, and Cerithrius in the east. King Bolgius arrived first, and found the once well-maintained formidable line of border forts empty, the wood rotting from lack of care. Something must have seemed off with the eerie sight of the abandoned frontier forts stretching away as far as the eye could see. Perhaps expecting a trap, Perhaps never planning on following Brennus onto Greece, King Bolgia sent a demand to Seranus in Pella that said if Macedonia would pay a huge sum in gold and silver, his horde would leave Macedonia untouched and they would seek other lands to raid. Paranoid, impulsive to the point of stupidity, Seranus was incapable of knowing a good offer when one was staring him in the face. Incredibly, the king of Macedonia thought that the Celts were suing for peace because they feared him and the mighty legacy of Alexander the Great that he now claimed as his own. Acting as if he had already vanquished Bolgius's horde, 
he demanded hostages of high rank to be sent to him before he would consider letting them leave in peace. According to legend, the envoys left the palace laughing and said, Serranus would soon see whether they had offered peace for regard of themselves or for him. When they returned to their king, Bolgius, enraged, he immediately ordered the assault of Macedonia to begin, pillaging the countryside as they went. Under pressure, Serranus had no choice but to marshal his army. Yet rather than wait for his full strength to assemble, he took only the levies from the capital and the surrounding towns, thus leaving a full half of his army behind, many of them veterans, meaning most of the men he led had only recently been recruited and were barely trained. There are very few details about the battle. What we do know is this. The Macedonian phalanx in a long line was assembled to match the length of the gigantic Celtic horde facing them. Enormous warriors, barbarians out of nightmare in the eyes of the new recruits. The name of these dreaded people, Keltoi, meaning tall ones, kept running through their astonished minds at the sight of them. Celtic longhorns, called Karnix, blared constantly, accompanied by resounding chants, their druids leading the painted warriors in battle hymns to their war gods. Assembled chieftains, braided beards flowing, and hair spiked in tall designs, dyed white from the lye used to lacquer it. Lone warriors driven to a frenzy by the battle chants emerged from the ranks and issued challenges to single combat to the Macedonian army. Each challenge brought new war cries from the horde. We can only imagine what was going through the young men of the phalanx's minds when their king led a charge with all his cavalry at the Celts. He had not given orders for the phalanx to advance, so the men just stood there and watched what unfolded. Imagine Ptolemy II Serranus at the head of his cavalry, picturing himself and his riders the equal of Alexander and his companions, charging in a line of diamond formations of 120 each. All heavy cavalry, except he, who rode one of his remaining Indian war elephants. Eternal glory, but more importantly, the one thing that every fail son in every society in all of human history wants more than anything else. The one thing that they can never buy. Respect. In his mind, it was right there for the taking. Except he was an Alexander, and he did not ride with the companions. As the charging cavalry was about to make contact with the Celts, a rain of javelins caused his war elephant to rear. Serranus was wounded as he was thrown off and immediately captured by the Celts. The cavalry charge was repulsed with huge losses, and utterly routed, they fled the battlefield as the king of Macedonia was cut to pieces in front of his army. His head placed on a spear held upright and high by the lead warrior of the Celtic charge on the Macedonian lines. The entire horde ran across the field at the now leaderless army, roaring their savage war cries. I can find no other instance in history of a Macedonian phalanx being completely crushed in one charge head-on. The army, completely demoralized after the death of their king, and with no support from cavalry or, crucially, war elephants, a charge from the fifty now guarding a Pyrrhus may well have saved the day. The new recruits, terrified, dropped their spears and fled for their lives. Many were slaughtered in the rout and those unfortunate enough to be captured were handed over to druids who ritualistically sacrificed them to the Celtic war gods. After the battle, Bolgius ordered his horde to move deeper into the kingdom, with orders to loot and pillage as they moved. A good way to picture a Celtic horde on the march in your mind is with the main grouping as the eye of the hurricane, 
with warbands sent out far and wide around it, trampling crops, stealing food, looting farms, burning villages, killing, raping, enslaving, and sacrificing every Macedonian they came across. Their path of destruction left a blackened scar across the countryside. There was one notable exception. The Celts had very limited ability in taking walled towns as they lacked siege equipment. Thus the towns in the capital city of Pella swelled to bursting with peasants, refugees from the countryside, who fled in fear from their homes. Their horrific tales of the savage Celtic invasion caused mass despair and sent the citizens fleeing to their temples, begging all the Greek gods for their aid. And as if in answer to their prayers, a Macedonian nobleman named Sosthenes arose. He had decided he needed to step into the leadership void left by the death of the king. He rallied all the remaining troops and every man old enough to wield a spear, sword, or bow, mixed them with the veterans, and drilled them into a small army. Knowing the rocky terrain of his country well, his force ambushed the Celtic horde while on the move, and his phalanx of perhaps 10,000 and his excellent companion cavalry routed the Celts. King Bolgius was most likely killed in the trap, and the Celts who survived the battle were sent fleeing leaving behind all they had looted. For a few brief days, it seemed like the Macedonians' prayers had been answered, and they rejoiced. But the remnant of Bolgius's horde made its way north and west to Brennus, who swore to them that they would have vengeance for the death of their king, and they elected to follow him. King Brennus was about to cross the border with a titanic horde of 150,000 warriors. When the alarming news of the insurmountable odds reached Sosthenes, only to be followed by reports of yet another horde approaching further east. He sent riders across the land and ordered every citizen to flee behind the walls of the nearest fortified town and help to defend it at all costs, resist. Thus, in essence, the countryside lay open to the Celts. The entire countryside was ravaged, every village and farm. The Macedonians, from the safety of their walled towns, could only look on helplessly as their country was devoured. Just before the two Celtic horrors descended on them, Sosthenes sent out pleas for aid across the Greek world. To the Ptolemies in Egypt, and to the Seleucids in Asia, and even to their hated enemies, the remnants of the Antigonids in Greece. In addition, he sent ambassadors with an urgent plea to Pyrrhus of Epirus campaigning against the Republic of Rome in Italy begging him to bring his army and come to Macedonia's aid. And if he succeeded in saving them, he would be proclaimed king of Macedonia and ascend to the throne of his cousin, Alexander the Great. As we experience the fate of that embassy in Pyrrhus, the last hero, I'll just say that no help was forthcoming. The Macedonians were on their own and utterly helpless to do anything but stay behind their walls. When the hordes of Brennus and Cerithrius merged in the south, Macedonia was a wasteland. The Celts had stolen and looted much and more in terms of food, tools, and base metals. But since they could not overcome the walls of the larger towns, they had not accumulated gold and silver in great quantities, which they desperately needed when they found the land on which to settle their people. That wealth would allow them to build and buy the raw materials to forge a strong nation. For that they would have to look south, just across the border, to Greece. And true to his word, Cerithrius took Brennus as war chief, and they planned their raid on the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi. 
Wealth and fame eternal was within Brennus's grasp. He could feel it, taste it. News of the fall of Macedonia, the homeland of Philip and Alexander the Great vanquished, shook the Mediterranean world to its core. In Greece, the free city-states that had recently rid themselves of their overlord, a remnant of the Antigonids, at first rejoiced that the ever-looming threat of Macedonian hegemony over them had vanished. But their celebrations were brief when reports arrived that the Celts were coming south directly for them. In Athens, the people were alarmed recalling the horrors of the Persian and Macedonian invasions in previous centuries. So they resolved to fight. They elected a commander called Astrategos, a nobleman and famous warrior named Calliopus, who sent out word from Athens across Greece, describing the dire threat to their homeland and that it was time to end all wars between the dozens of never-too-friendly city-states. An eloquent plea to set aside all rivalries and unite in a pan-Hellenic alliance to defeat the Celts. Affirmative replies came from across central and northern Greece, and then wonderful news from the east when the powerful Aetolian League of Cities joined the alliance. But where to confront the enemy? Even with so many cities, the Alliance could not hope to face Brennus's horde on an open battlefield. The Celts' massive numbers would allow them to surround and crush the Greeks. Thus, there was only one choice, one battlefield, the Hot Gates, Thermopylae. The ancient and narrow mountain path that had always been the northern gateway to Greece. On one side, unscalable mountains, and on the other, it dropped far down to marshes with the open sea just beyond. At its narrowest point, there were three low walls called gates that could easily be defended. And just south, at the mouth of the Greek side of the pass, were hot springs famous for their healing properties, which is how this strange place got its name. Literally translated, Thermopylae means hot pass. In the confines of the hot pass at the hot gates, the Greek phalanx would be as formidable an obstacle as Leonidas and his 300 Spartans proved in 480 BCE, as we witnessed firsthand in my episode, The Gates of Hell. The Celtic advantage in numbers would be completely mitigated and the feared and famous barbarian cavalry completely useless in the pass. Strategos Calliopus and all Greeks, of course, knew about the fatal flaw in his plan. The famous goat trail. The hard-to-find mountain trail in the north that would allow the invaders to climb into the mountains and emerge miles behind the defenders at Thermopylae, trapping the Greeks between the advancing army coming up the pass and the one coming from behind, sealing the defenders' doom, like Sparta's 300 a fate no one wished on their worst enemy. As supreme commander, Strategos Calliopus doubted the uneducated barbarians would even know the legendary tale of the 300 Spartans' last stand centuries before, much less know of the existence of the goat trail. So he sent orders to the cities of the Alliance to rally to him at Thermopylae and came up with a strategy to repulse the Celtic horde from Greece forever. The Alliance accepted the risky plan because the Temple of Apollo and the oracle at Delphi, the religious and spiritual center of their world, must be defended at all costs, and it lay not far away. For the defense of Greece, the Strategos would have at his command 20,000 heavy infantry, 
hoplites that fought in a classical Greek phalanx, though with longer spears, most likely 12 to 14 feet in length, armored in bronze, and each equipped with a round shield, the hoplon, from which hoplites got their name. In battle, the hoplite's shields would partially overlap, offering protection to the men next to them. With the spears of the first few ranks stabbing, and the men behind bracing the line, typically with 8 to 32 ranks behind the front line, the allied cities provided a mix of excellent skirmishers, including archers, deadly slingers, and javelineers, along with a contingent of light cavalry scouts and an elite force of 2,000 Greek heavy cavalry. Once delivered to the base of the pass by the bulk of the Athenian navy, the Strategos took command of the alliance. First he sent the forces from the nearby area of Phocis, approximately 4,000 hoplites, to secure the goat trail. High in the mountains, with orders to hold the pass long enough to warn the main Greek army at Thermopylae. Next, he ordered his cavalry and skirmishers north to the open plains miles beyond the pass to harass and if possible prevent the Celts from crossing the river Spurtius. The river was deep and swift, very difficult to ford, so their first assignment was to destroy the wooden bridges over it. The Greeks had barely set fire to the last of them when the vanguard of Brennus's horde was seen on the north bank. Across the river, the Greeks were taunting the Celts and yelling insults, daring them to wade across. When Brennus himself arrived, he saw that if his warriors tried to ford the river, they would be obliterated by the constant fire from the Greek skirmishers, and those that were not would surely be pulled downstream by the swift current. A plan was needed. So the Celts stood there while the Greeks hurled their insults and taunts. However, Brennus knew something the Greeks did not. The oblong shields every warrior carried could float, and more importantly, possessed enough buoyancy that a warrior could lay across one and paddle with his arms. So he gathered 10,000 of his best swimmers and sent them downstream to near the mouth of the river, with orders to silently float across the river and attack the Greeks at dawn. His warriors executed their orders perfectly, moved in silence, never alerting the watchful Greeks. An incredible feat. At the break of dawn, the Greek cavalry and skirmishers were awakened in their camp by the blood-chilling sound of Celtic Carnix horns being blown from their side of the river. Greek sentries pointed to the east, where the Celtic 10,000 were already charging across the mile between them and the Greek camp. Wisely, the Greeks fled back to Thermopylae, and upon witnessing their flight, Brennus ordered that the heavily damaged bridges across the river be rebuilt, and soon his titanic horde was across. Having recovered his cavalry and skirmishers, the strategos Calliopus deployed his defense. He broke up the army into powerful units that could operate in the confines of the pass, so that each block of the phalanx was 50 to 80 shields across, with eight ranks behind. The reason for this relatively shallow line was that he placed a unit of skirmishers attached to each phalanx block to fire over their heads and into the plentiful enemy ranks. He drilled his men so the movement of units within the confines of the hot gates became familiar. And he had a surprise for the Celts. Thus he ceded all of Thermopylae except the narrowest southern third of it. He wanted the entire pass filled with Brennus's horde for miles, locked in place by the mountains and the sea.
the Battle of Thermopylae of 279 before the Common Era unfolded thusly. At the break of dawn on the next morning, Brennus gave a rousing speech to his assembled warriors, telling them that all they had to do was crush the Greeks and the wealth of the oracle at Delphi would be theirs for the taking. They would all be rich individually, with more than enough gold left over for every assembled tribe to forge a new destiny for themselves in rich lands which they not only would have the means to take, but to hold. They could build a new powerful home. The previous night, Druids had performed sacrifices to the war gods and had blessed the paint that the warriors had marked their faces and bodies with with drops of that blood. At Brennus's signal, a host of Carnix horns were blown and his horde roared. The sound would have been deafening up close and easily heard by the defenders at Thermopylae. Battle was imminent. The Celts set out immediately after, filling the mouth of the pass, forced to start a miles-long column up to the hot gates. The strategus Calliopus ordered his army to form as they had trained in the narrows at the first gate. The phalanx formed, and the alliance waited, all the while serenaded by the eerie sound of low-echoing horns and Celtic battle hymns, coming and going with the breeze from the sea, beyond sight, but getting louder each time, coming ever closer. And soon, the ground beneath their sandaled feet began vibrating. When the first element of Celtic warriors appeared at the top of the pass and saw the Greeks, they let loose a war cry that was taken up by all the horde behind them. They charged and began an all-out assault on the phalanx. The tens of thousands that followed them became driven into a frenzy at the sounds of battle, pushing those in front of them to move quicker, eager to join the fight and vanquish the Greeks. The crush at the front of the line was becoming extreme. Due to the confines of the past, the Celts could only bring to bear around 80 warriors in front to face the Greeks, who, unlike the Celts, were a disciplined force. The rear ranks of each block of the phalanx braced the men in front, lowered their spears in the limited gaps in their tight line, and stabbed. From behind them, flying over their helmeted heads, came a coordinated volley of throwing spears or lead shots from slings. These projectiles proved devastating, as apart from the nobles, most Celtic warriors fought with light cloth or leather armor, a poor defense, and many tens of thousands simply fought naked and barefoot. Believing that the sacred symbols painted on their bodies and the runes carved into the torques around their neck would be all the protection they needed. The Greek phalanx not only held but excelled in head-on fighting what it was designed for. Celtic casualties began to mount. By midday, the entire length of the pass, all the way down to the Celtic camp, was packed full of Brennus's warriors. Relentless, the weight of the men pushing to get to the front was crushing. The enthusiasm and fervor of the warriors further down the pass was creating unending pressure that was quite literally pushing their warriors onto Greek spear points. The pile of dead and wounded Celts in front of the phalanx quickly became a hill that once on the verge of becoming a mountain forced the Greeks back into the pass, past the first gate, with the relentless Celts climbing over their fallen and running down to savagely attack the phalanx. The barbarian onslaught redoubled. Seeing this, the strategos Calliopus gave his signal, and the surprise he had been holding back was revealed. Coming north along the coast came a long line of Athenian warships, triremes, equipped with catapults, and their decks packed with his archers. 
As soon as the first ship was in range, it unleashed a storm of projectiles up at the densely packed Celts on the pass, followed by dozens of other ships, repeated over and over. The volleys relentless as they sailed up the coast. The Athenian captains risking becoming grounded in the treacherous marshes in order to stay in range. The effect of the fire on the concentrated ranks of Celts was devastating, withering, and worse, the Celts could do nothing to respond in kind. Their bravery and perseverance are without doubt because they kept coming at the Greeks, the pressure barely letting up on the phalanx. The words of the historian Pausanias, they rushed at the Greeks like wild beasts, full of rage and temperament, with no kind of reasoning at all. They were chopped down with spears and swords, but their blind fury never left while there was still breath in their bodies. Even with arrows and javelins sticking through them, they carried on by sheer spirit while their life lasted. Some of them even pulled spears they were hit by out of their wounds and threw them or stabbed with them. The battle ended at nightfall. The Celts retreating to their camp in the north and the Greeks to theirs in the south. The strategos Calliopus declared victory, and from his exhausted Greeks rose a cheer. If the Celts kept coming up the pass, they would kill them all. In this, he badly underestimated the cunning of war chief Brennus. The Celts had suffered horrendous losses. We don't know the exact number, but for context, Xerxes' Persian army lost at least 10,000 on that first day in 480 BCE. Given the added assault of the Athenian navy, it is safe to at least double that number. And just as on the first day of the legendary Battle of Thermopylae, the Greeks had suffered miraculously few casualties, only 40 deaths, with several hundred mostly minor injuries. To commemorate their victory and the sacrifice of a brave youth of Athens who died valiantly that day, the Strategos sent his shield to Athens to be coated in silver and dedicated as an offering to Zeus of freedom. It was inscribed with these words, The shield of a brave man, Zeus's offering, pining away for the youth Sidious, the first shield his left arm ever put on, when raging war went hottest at the Gauls. I mention this detail not only because Sidious's name and deeds deserve to be remembered, but because around two centuries later, this shield would end up in the personal collection of a man we have come to know intimately, one Lucius Cornelius Sulla, after his legions destroyed Athens. But that is a tale for another day. While battle was raging at the pass, a few Greek deserters had come to the Celtic camp and for a reward of gold gave Brennus intelligence he desperately needed. They gave him the specific makeup of the Greek army holding the pass. They also informed him the strongest contingent of hoplites, some 8,000, one-third of the Greek army, were from the Aetolian League of Cities, and that their undefended lands could be easily reached if the Celts followed the mountains west. In fact, that route would lead them directly to Calion, a very important and rich Aetolian city. It lay just a week's march away. The deserters insisted that there was no reason for the Celts to keep attacking Thermopylae. Brennus paid them for their valuable information. It is interesting to note that the Greeks did not reveal the existence of the goat trail, the fatal flaw in any defense of the pass. Perhaps they did not wish their names to ring out in infamy through the ages, like Ephialtes, who betrayed the location of the trail to Xerxes in 480 BCE. Brennus considered. He had no interest in taking or plundering Aetolia, but with their army at the pass, 
their country lay open to him. His mind was fixed on the riches of Delphi, his fame eternal. So he dispatched two of his chieftains at the head of 40,000 warriors, along with an escort of heavy cavalry, with orders to destroy Calion and then return to the horde. Since the only way to Delphi was through the pass, Brennus wanted to drastically weaken the Greek alliance. He also must have thought that there had to be another path through the mountains, because he dispatched hundreds of scouting parties to explore the foothills. The rest of his battered and exhausted warriors he allowed to rest and recuperate while he waited to see if his brutal plan would bear fruit. When the Celts reached Calion, they found the city lightly defended, as most of their warriors were at Thermopylae. They easily breached the gates and then went on to sack the city brutally. In previous episodes, we have learned about many other cities being sacked and burned. I attempt to leave out the most gruesome details of these horrifying ordeals. However, this is one of the few cases where we need to hear it because this is what the army of the Aetolian League at Thermopylae heard was happening in their homeland just days later. Just a warning, this is graphic and not pleasant at all, so if that bothers you, skip ahead 30 seconds. The historian Pausanias' words. They butchered every male of that entire race, the old men and the children at the breast, and the Gauls drank the blood and ate the flesh of those slaughtered babies that were fattest with milk. Any woman and mature virgins with a spark of pride killed themselves as soon as the city fell. Those who lived were subjected to wanton violence, to every form of outrage by men as remote from mercy as they were remote from love. Women who came on a Gaulish sword committed suicide with their own hands. It was not long before the others were to die by famishing hunger and sleeplessness. Outraged in an endless succession by pitiless and barbarous men, they mated with the dying and mated with the already dead. As you can imagine, the story of this atrocity spread across the Aetolian League of Cities and across Greece. Messengers were immediately dispatched to recall their army from Thermopylae, with desperate pleas to come to the defense of their homeland. Setting aside the brutality of Brennus's plan for an instant, we can see its brilliance. For when the warriors of the League heard that their homeland was under attack, they immediately demanded to return. Facing a mutiny and wishing to return himself, their commander had no choice but to lead them back to Aetolia over the pleas of Strategos Calliopus. 8,000 elite hoplites, one-third of the alliance's strength, was gone. And, unknown to the Greeks, it was right around this time that one of the scouting parties Brennus had sent out discovered the goat trail the Achilles' heel of any defense of Thermopylae. Thus, days before the force he had sent to pillage Calion had returned, Brennus, as war chief, led his personal guard of 40,000 warriors and moved towards the goat trail. His personal army, consisting of the best warriors of all the tribes that he led, first among which, and held in highest esteem, were the Druids of the Tectosages, a strange tribe of wandering Druids out to explore the world, far from their homeland, which was centered on the fortified town of Tolosa, modern Toulouse in France. These two to three hundred druids and a contingent of warriors, along with their families, had come upon Brennus while he was uniting the displaced tribes and those eking out a living in the Grey Zone. They presented themselves not as his subjects, as they had no wish to settle in new lands, for after these wanderers had seen what there was to see of the world, they would return to Tolosa to add the knowledge they had attained to the collective wisdom of their people. Brennus eagerly accepted them, 
for all knew of the spiritual powers and abilities of Tolosan battle druids. Their uncanny knowledge of the natural world allowed them to range through the wilderness and forage to feed themselves, passing through the territories of much larger tribes like ghosts, always observing, which made them peerless scouts, and they were put in charge of directing all foragers for his ever-growing horde. However, this was the least of their utility. Remember, to these people, this is a time the gods are real. And the druids of the Tecto Sages had a powerful connection to the Celtic pantheon. All the gods, over 400 of them. These druids had trained as acolytes for 25 years before they earned the title. Learning in the oral tradition, they memorized every history, fable, the story of every god and goddess, and knew their unique skills and powers, wants and desires. As they studied, they mastered every prayer, ritual, and sacrifice so they quite literally could call on a godly power for any situation. Before battle, they would spread throughout the horde, conducting ritualistic sacrifices to the gods they wished to call upon. Blessing the war paint nearly all Celts covered their faces and bodies in with drops of blood from sacrificed animals. As the army gathered to charge, they would be leading tens of thousands of troops in battle chants that thundered across the battlefield at the enemy. In combat, they would be with the warriors, calling down the wrath of their gods and sending warriors into berserk frenzies with their shouted prayers and thrown curses, an incalculably valuable asset. Especially now, given Brennus was about to enter the lands where the Greek gods ruled supreme, and he would need these druids to protect the Celts from their powers. Just before entering the mouth of the pass, the Tecto sages called upon their gods to protect them from the denizens of Olympus and use all their powers to aid Brennus in his noble quest. And immediately after, a strange thing happened. Be it their prayers being answered by the Celtic gods or not, as if on cue, a morning mountain mist on the peaks of either side that had been forming began to flow down the mountainside and filled the goat trail in a thick mist, concealing the approach of the Celts. Thus, Brennus's 40,000 entered the narrow pass in a long line of warriors. Sure that the Greeks would not leave any path through the mountains undefended, the scouts were sent far in advance, and his warriors told to move in silence. The thick, almost unnatural mist remained with them throughout the morning. It is said that it darkened the sun to such a degree that it appeared as nothing more than a brown orb in the sky. Around noon, as the Celts were making their way up a very steep incline, through the mist shadows appeared, scouts returning with intelligence. They informed Brennus that the incline would soon end and the short path beyond opened to a wide glade covered in thick, soft grass, and that while weaving their way through the mist, they discovered a Greek army camp there. The cold, damp, blinding mist had most of the Greeks huddled in their tents, and the number of guards and lookouts posted around the camp were few, and even they could only see a few feet around them. If they used a god's gift to approach with stealth and quietly launch an assault, the unprepared Greeks would be taken completely by surprise. So Brennus sent his orders past man to man back through the long line of the horde that filled the goat trail. The first thousand warriors would make their way into the glade and use the mist to pick off the Greek sentries and then silently attack the soldiers in their tents. In the meanwhile, Brennus himself would assemble a large force on the other side of the glade and charge, overrunning the camp. 
The Greeks camped in the glade were the Phocian contingent of the Greek army. Their towns not far away in the same region, Phocis, as the oracle at Delphi. Strategos Calliopus had reasoned that these men, used to living on the mountainous ground of their homeland, would have the best chance at alpine combat. His orders were to guard the pass and send messengers down, back to Thermopylae, the minute they encountered the enemy, and if possible, hold the goat trail, at least until they could receive orders from the Strategos as to whether reinforcements were on the way or to retreat to their homeland. This order would mean the Greek alliance would be abandoned in Thermopylae entirely. It's something of a mystery as to why the commanders of the Phocians did not keep a constant guard on the narrow incline up to the glade. When the attack came, the concealing mist, the soft wet grass absorbing the sounds of feet, the Celtic advance force slew the sentries with ease and had penetrated the outer line of tents before an alarm was raised. The Greeks rushed out of their tents and into the mist. Chaos ensued. Unorganized, the Phocians fought valiantly, and their sacrifice allowed the Greek army time to form themselves into a phalanx to receive the Celtic onslaught. And just as they were gaining the upper hand in combat at the camp, the long, low wail of Karnak's horns could be heard on their flank, followed by the roar of thousands of barbarians, and moments later, the charge of Brennus's personal horde, appearing out of the mist, mere feet away. It should have been a slaughter right then and there, but the Phocians reorganized and fought in a measured retreat, though it was massively costly in lives. Overwhelmed, constantly pushed back by the seemingly endless flood of Celts from two sides, only 400 of the original 4,000 Phocians escaped, hotly pursued by Brennus, for he had just learned from captured soldiers who these Greeks were and that their homeland surrounded the Oracle. All he need do was follow them to his heart's desire. Fame eternal. The Phocians moved out of the pass and dispatched runners to inform Strategos Calliopus that the barbarians had broken through and that the Greek alliance position at Thermopylae was fatally compromised. When the messengers arrived and delivered the dreaded news, the Strategos ordered an immediate retreat from the hot gates. They could not allow themselves to be surrounded. He thanked the men of Phocis for their valor and told them to go home and raise all the people of their land in the defense of Delphi. He sent with them experienced Athenian commanders to act as observers for Athens officially, but really to advise the men of Phocis and the temple guardians in the defense of their land against the imminent Celtic onslaught. Then Calliopus oversaw the complete evacuation of the forces of the alliance from Thermopylae. Already they could hear Karnak's horns and battle cries coming up from the pass from the north. The Celts would be upon them in minutes. There was very little time. As quickly as they could, the Greeks withdrew from the pass down to the coast where the ships of the Athenian navy, whose missile barrages had proved so lethal at the battle, waited for them. And it was only with the heroic sacrifice of a Greek rearguard at the pass that bought them enough time to get most of the army aboard the ships. With the Celts jeering at them from the shore as they sailed away, defeated. The only bright spot for the Strategos was that the men of Phocis and the observers he sent with them got away. It was now up to the gods to help the people of Greece. It is from the reports of these Athenian observers that we get our first hand account of Brennus's personal horde versus the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi. A quick word about the path to Delphi. 
in your mind picture a V-shaped gorge, the floor of which was a trail that allowed no more than 20 men to pass at a time, shoulder to shoulder, for many miles. This was the northernmost of the three paths to the Oracle, with uneven, steep, rocky mountainsides rising on either side of the path and completely inaccessible to the Celts below. The gorge eventually opened onto a small plain at the foot of Mount Parnassus, high on the southern slope of which lay the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, the holiest place in Greece, if not the known world. The temple complex housed the oracle and was home to dozens of priests and hundreds of acolytes that devoted themselves to the god Apollo. They looked after his sanctuary, saw to the needs of pilgrims and the display and protection of the offerings, and above all, they attended the Pythia, the high priestess, the oracle of Apollo. Delphi, constructed on a major fault line, had the oracle sitting in a cavern under the temple. She sat astride a crack in the ground from which spewed a constant vapor of gases emanating from the earth's core. She would inhale these vapors deeply and undulate her body in the unending stream. These vapors produce a psychedelic state, mankind's link to Olympus, the realm of the Greek gods. This is how she became a direct conduit to Apollo. From across the Greek world and far beyond, people from the lowliest farmer to kings would come to receive the wisdom of Apollo. First meeting with the priests, who would talk to the supplicants, find out why they had made the arduous journey. Then, if deemed worthy, they would perform a series of rituals designed to bring one closer to Apollo, to bring your problems to his attention. Finally, the priest would help the supplicant to formulate a single question to ask the oracle. At that point, depending on their means, an offering had to be made. For a peasant, it could be as simple as providing grain or food for the temple. For those of higher classes, it was an offering of silver vessels. And kings or cities would have to make offerings in gold. Then they would be escorted to the oracle, where they would receive their answer. The temple complex was bursting with offerings from the likes of Philip II of Macedon, Alexander the Great, Leonidas of Sparta, and all the glorious offerings from the kings and city-states of the golden age of ancient Greece, which is why the Celts wanted to take it. With this obscene amount of wealth, they would instantly become powerful in a world that had forsaken them for so long. It appears Brennus was wise to take into account the powers of the Greek gods. Yet as his horde approached, even the prayers of the druids of the Tecto sages seemed powerless in the lands of the Olympians. The raid had to strike the Oracle of Delphi like a bolt of lightning and then get out just as quickly. Because even as it begun, it was as if the land itself pulsed with the presence of Apollo and other denizens of Olympus. And according to the Athenian observers, Brennus's epic raid unfolded like this. As his personal army of 40,000 entered the gorge, Brennus took the lead. A sudden, unseasonable cold wind came down from the north, which quickly turned into a biting frost and wet rain that turned into ice on the ground, making the path slippery. And then a heavy snow began to fall, a blizzard unlike the Celts, familiar with winter in the expanses of the north, had ever experienced. The speed of the wind turning each snowflake into a tiny jagged shard making it impossible to see far ahead, or indeed keep one's eyes open for too long. To the Greeks, this was Boreas and his daughter Kione, the gods of the north wind and winter coming to aid Apollo. 
the blizzard greatly slowed their advance. And on top of that, the snow that accumulated further up the mountainside came down in small avalanches, not enough to bury men, but enough to make the movement forward ever more treacherous and difficult. Far worse was yet to come. At Delphi, the Phocians had brought word of the approaching menace, and the two head priests rushed into the inner sanctum and begged the Pythia to ask Apollo what they should do to protect his sanctuary and all his treasure. The Pythia swayed and danced, writhing in the stream of intoxicating vapor that poured through the crack in the earth. And then she stopped. Her eye shot open, and Apollo answered, I shall defend my own. The priest took this to mean that Apollo would defend his property. But fanatically loyal to their god, and under the guidance of the Athenian observers, the locals, temple guardians, and priests began fortifying the steppe mountainside that led up to the oracle. In the meanwhile, many of the local Phocians went into the foothills that surrounded the gorge by paths only known to them, and in the cover of the night they took up high positions, where they could fire down at the horde without the Celts able to reach them. In the pre-dawn darkness, the long, stretched out, cold, exhausted horde awoke to screams of warriors at the head of the column who were being pelted by showers of stones, arrows, and javelins from the Phocians. Brennus ordered his warriors to action. There would be no stopping until the treasure was theirs. The warriors raised their shields over their heads and began rushing forward as best they could on the now snow and ice-covered treacherous ground. And as they set off, let out a colossal war cry so that their gods could hear them and know that their warriors required their aid and to witness their deeds. The war cry passed from front to back, the mountains echoing with it, until it was silenced by a single monumental clap of thunder that reverberated through their raised shields, into the bones of their arms, and down through their bodies, shaking them to their core, and all knew that Zeus, lord of Olympus, and all the gods of the Greek pantheon had heard them instead of their own. To the Celts it did not matter. They were seeking the wealth of Delphi for their people, their families, their future, their honor. Brennus renewed the war cry, and they pressed further into the gorge, all the while being pelted with missiles from the Phocians on the cliffs. The Celts were taking losses from the missile fire, but their shields kept most warriors safe. But then, as they approached the end of the gorge, Poseidon made his presence known. A massive earthquake rocked the entire mountainside. Boulders and rock slides smashed into the Celts from both sides all along the gorge. No shield could protect them, and the hundreds were killed and wounded. It was with the ground still shaking that Brennus and the lead elements emerged onto the plain that lay before Mount Parnassus. And at last, above them on the mountainside, they could see their goal. The Temple of Apollo stood out against the black storm clouds that had formed, emitting a constant, deafening, rolling thunder. And on the stepped incline, on either side of the paved sacred way, the guardians of the temple were arrayed, hundreds of them, with the intent of making the horde pay dearly in blood for every step they took towards the oracle. Apart from a few experienced armored hoplites, the bulk of the defenders were untrained priests and locals, wielding whatever weapons they could find. However, their morale was high. In their eyes, the glare and fervor of religious fanatics that were witnessing proof that their gods were with them. Brennus waited until enough of his horde had exited the gorge, 
the ground under their feet, still feeling Poseidon Earthshaker's wrath in a seemingly endless series of severe aftershocks and attacked. The battle on the Sacred Way began as all Celtic battles did, with Karnak's horns blaring, followed by a devastating charge. However, this was no ordinary battlefield. The charging horde was met with a lightning storm erupting from the black clouds above, and Zeus made his anger felt. Each strike of lightning killed Celt and set the men around them on fire. The guardians of the temple cheered, and priests dropped to their knees in divine ecstasy as they witnessed their prayers being answered as the awesome power of the king of Olympus was unleashed. It must have been with great dismay that despite the shaking ground and the lightning, the defenders saw that the Celtic onslaught never stopped, never wavered. They kept coming, driven into a frenzy by the counter-curses of the Tecto Sages. Their finest warriors plowed into the first line of defenders and continued cutting their way up the paved sacred way. The battle was unbelievably savage. Soon, the defenders were in a hopeless situation. With few professional soldiers, the Phokian locals, shepherds and traders, not warriors, and each barbarian they slew only brought dread because he would be replaced by an even more dangerous foe. Massively outnumbered and outclassed, the two head priests of Apollo consulted, remembered their god's words, and were witnessing the wrath of Olympus before their eyes. So they ordered a retreat high up towards the peak of Mount Parnassus, well beyond the oracle. Apollo would do as he said, and would protect his own. War chief Brennus, the pain from the wound on his leg he had received during the assault throbbing, must have had a momentary respite from it when he saw the fleeing Greeks disappear into the wooded peak beyond, and above him, his heart's desire, the sanctuary undefended. The treasures of the oracle at Delphi were his people's for the taking, and his name and deeds would indeed live forever in the sagas of the Celts. And he roared in triumph as his men seized the sacred ground. Still, the cost had been high. Six thousand of his warriors had died thus far, and he feared that if his men lost their battle frenzy, the very real terror of the Greek gods would seep in and come to drive them mad with fear. After securing the complex of buildings, the sheer amount of treasure, the offerings of centuries that they beheld put to shame the fables that were spoken of it in the north. So much, many solid gold statues weighing hundreds of pounds, so much gold and silver that they could not possibly take it all. So each warrior was instructed to take all he could carry on his person. The Celts were all soon covered in gold and silver, huge plates tied across chests and back, ropes of glittering chains worn around every neck, and their arms covered in solid gold bangles. After they had taken all they could, they were eager to charge down the sacred way, eager to get back to the gorge and out of this god-cursed land. However, it was late at night, and the lightning storm outside was becoming even more intense. So the warriors took shelter in the temple, shrines, and buildings for a few hours rest, violent aftershocks continually rousing them from sleep. At the break of dawn, the horde lined up, glittering with the stolen treasure they wore, and followed their war chief down Mount Parnassus and into the gorge north, the way they had come, back to Thermopylae and their people, only to find that the Phokians had not been idle. Overnight, hundreds more locals had gathered, and every inaccessible precipice on either side of the gorge was full, 
Worse, the Phokians had gathered wagons full of projectiles and set up large boulders which they pushed over the sides, flattening any Celts unlucky enough to be caught in their way. In addition to the now ultra-intense, unending fire from the Phokians, Brennus's men were greatly slowed by the tens, if not hundreds of pounds of gold and silver each warrior was wearing. Their arms, twice as heavy, had difficulty keeping their shields raised. The boulders and the previous day's rock slides created obstacles which slowed them even more. They began suffering horrendous losses. Warriors stopping to remove the treasures from the dead so that their people would benefit from their sacrifice. Wounded Celts begged to be slain rather than to be left to the mercy of the Greeks. Trapped in the gorge with ever-mounting obstacles, the horde became split into three separate groups. Exhausted, the first group stopped its advance as the sun was setting in an area of the gorge where there were no Phokian locals firing down upon them. Brennus ordered his men to rest while they waited for their warriors fallen behind to arrive. Unknown to Brennus, the two other groups were actually quite far behind as the obstacles in their way kept growing, the ground slick from the blood, bile, and bodies of the fallen. The earthquake and the continuing aftershocks had opened treacherous crevices in the ground that grew larger with each quake. It became hard to see them in the growing darkness. Tripping many warriors who fell and needed help to rise with the added weight of all the treasure they wore. Then, as the third group neared the second, something very strange happened. The Athenian observers watching from the mountainside could not believe what they witnessed next. The Celts in the third group charged and attacked the second. Even when the warriors screamed out that they were friends, the assault continued with a renewed frenzy. The historian Pausanias' words. The disturbance broke out among the soldiers in the deepening dusk, and at first only a few were driven out of their minds. They thought that they could hear an enemy attack and that hoofbeats of horses were coming for them. It was not long before madness ran through the whole force. They snatched up arms and killed one another or were killed without recognizing their own language or one another's faces or even the shape of their shields. The slaughter was of epic proportions. The warriors had become filled with fear, doubt, and paranoia. It dominated every thought, and no quarter was given. After the raid, a council of Greek priests was called to explain what happened, and after long debate, they attributed the incident to the god Pan, who brought his unique brand of chaos down on the barbarians. Panic. In modern terms, it is possible that the cracks and fissures that opened in the gorge by the earthquakes let loose the same hallucinogenic gases that the oracle used in her holy sanctum. The Celts were intoxicated and experienced hallucinations that drove them to the point of literal madness. Instead of friends, allies, and brothers in arms, they saw demons from their darkest nightmares and slew them in heaps. Psychedelic bloodlust. The crazed battle lasted throughout the night. Dawn broke the spell, and their survivors, horrified at what they had just done, slew the wounded that could not continue, collected as much of the treasure off the bodies of the dead that they could carry, and made their way up to the gorge, the first group. When they arrived, their tale of the slaughter brought wails of sorrow. Brennus, the wound on his leg searing with pain, festering as if the wound had been cursed by Hades himself, was utterly devastated by the news. He had brought down the wrath of the Greek gods on his people, 
he was responsible and he would end it himself. But only after he got his warriors out of this gorge of death and his people secured the treasure of Apollo, their future. The next few hours were a man-made catastrophe for the Celts. Because as the mountains on either side of the gorge became foothills, the fortified positions of the Phokian locals became longer and wider as the gradients of the slopes decreased. The gauntlet of unending missile fire that Brennus's horde endured should have made it one of the most famous perilous marches in all of history. And it would have been, except for, well, we'll get to that in a minute. As the battered Celts finally emerged from the gorge, they finally found some good fortune. A chieftain from the main army at Thermopylae led a relief force and secured their escape route all the way back to the pass. After all his surviving warriors, approximately 24,000 out of the original 40,000, Brennus, full of despair as the full magnitude, the weight of all he had witnessed during the raid on Delphi, fell upon him. He consulted with his druids. They prepared a sacred poison for him to drink, believing, as Brennus did, that his life for having planned and led the raid would satisfy the vengeance of Apollo and thus allow his people to take the treasure and thrive. So he drank it, asking only that his people remember his name, and before his most loyal warriors fell on his sword. After his funeral pyre, the Celts hurried back to the pass and their massive force. There the unity that Brennus had inspired quickly shattered as the various chieftains divided the loot according to their people's share and they set out back north to the safety of Macedonia. As they neared the river Spiricus, the Celts came under constant attack from the cavalry of the Aetolian League, who had come to seek vengeance for the horrific sack of Calion. Their hit-and-run tactics kept the Celts in constant fear of attack and consistently taking losses. Yet that was the least of their problems, for each chieftain that had claimed part of the looted treasure died. The details are few, but none appears to have died in battle, but in a strange series of accidents. Even more bizarre, the men that rose to replace them as leaders died as well. As the completely demoralized tribes of the once mighty and united horde reached the relative safety of the ravaged Macedonian countryside, a religious council was held to determine what was happening to their leaders. First among the Druids, the Tectosages communed with their gods and after, proclaimed to the assembled tribes that all of the gold and silver stolen from Delphi was cursed. Anyone who possessed it would face nothing but calamity and certain death. Apollo wanted his treasure back, but what to do? They could not take it back themselves without suffering even more losses from the vengeful Greeks. They could not leave it behind, for surely with such a massive treasure, the temptation for anyone who came upon it would be too great. Even if the bulk of the treasure was eventually returned to the Oracle of Apollo, at least some of it would be stolen, melted down into coin, and passed from hand to hand, spreading the curse across the world and eventually ending the race of man, an infamy that they could not allow themselves to be responsible for. Thus the treasure must be returned to Apollo with all haste. So the Celts gathered every piece of the treasure together, using the forges in captured villages to melt it down and smelt it into ingots. After their long labor, there were 10,000 bars of gold and 1,000 bars of silver. 
Brennus had been correct. They had indeed taken enough wealth for all their people to prosper, yet the divine curse had ruined his plan. They loaded all the bars onto large carts pulled by teams of captured oxen, and the treasure was given into the care of the Tecto sages, who were tasked with containing the curse forever. At least half of the wandering druids began the long journey from Macedonia to their homeland in faraway Gaul, for in Tolosa, modern Toulouse, was the premier temple of Celtic Apollo, where they believed the god's anger would be satiated and the curse contained. As with many Celtic warbands throughout history, without its leader, the various tribes of Brennus's horde dispersed. About half went east, crossed the Hellespont, and entered Anatolia, modern Turkey, in the interior of which they found lands that were almost empty of people. There they decided to remain and settle and became the country we call Galatia. Their new kingdom soon became prosperous and powerful because of the very high fees the Celts charged fighting as mercenary companies in the armies of the kings of the east. The tens of thousands that remained in Macedonia eventually joined Pyrrhus of Epirus upon his return from Italy. They helped him defeat his enemies and secure the throne. He then paid them well, and they moved off into the mists of history. In Greece, in the immediate aftermath of the raid, the newly freed Greek cities that had served in the alliance at Thermopylae had no wish to let the world know that the Celtic raid was successful. It would make them look weak and an easy target to the power-hungry kings of the Mediterranean world. Led by Athens, a massive cover-up ensued. Any damage to the structures of the temple complex at Delphi was quickly repaired. The amount of offerings of gold and silver that had accumulated over the centuries was so vast that what was stolen was quickly replaced from nearby underground storehouses, so that to pilgrims and those who sought the wisdom of Apollo, Delphi looked pristine. Tales were spread across the Mediterranean world of the miraculous appearance of gods and long-dead ancient heroes who came to the aid of Apollo's priests and crushed the Celts for daring to attack the sacred site. This propaganda worked wonders, but just as with the pass of Thermopylae, it had one major flaw. The Celtic people of the north told the tragic tale of Brennus and his horde, who dared to take on the powers of Olympus and escape. These two different histories coexisted and spread. Through merchants and traders who moved between the Celtic, Roman, and Greek worlds, it became legend mere years after it happened, and soon a famous myth. Once in Tolosa, the gold and silver were placed in the inner sanctum of the temple. The Tecto sages prayed to Apollo and sacrifices were made. Six huge statues of Apollo were carved from tree trunks, so that from every angle in the room, Apollo could see that the Celts had returned his treasure to him. The curse was contained, and there the treasure lay. Not a single ounce was spent, until 174 years later. When a Roman consul took Tolosa by force and had his men break into the sacred temple of Celtic Apollo and could not believe his eyes when he saw that the legends were true. Under the watchful eyes of the six statues of Apollo, his men removed the treasure and the consul plotted to steal it all for himself, bringing the calamity of the curse down on the Republic of Rome while Jupiter's chosen and Nicopolis's Felix made war on the grandson of Masinissa in Africa. This is a tale of the northern frontier.
the tale of the dark forest beyond the Alps where the fading light of the late Republic did not shine, the tale of a people who burst out of their ravaged homeland at the edge of the known world, driven forward by a prophecy of a promised land, a new home, if they had the resolve to search for clues to its location, written in the blood and entrails of their enemies. The saga of a Roman consul's greed that would bring down the wrath of a god on his homeland. Rome versus the Scordisci. Rome versus the Teutones. Rome versus the Cimbri. The Barbarian Wars. So take a deep breath. Let it out slowly. Put some smoke in the air if you choose. And let your mind flow to my voice as we go deep into the century before the Common Era and experience the catastrophic Battle of Arousio in the epic prelude to the Cimbrian War. Versus the Curse of Apollo's Gold. Welcome. I hope you enjoyed this teaser of my next episode. The full version will be available to my patrons very soon. Go to patreon.com slash deep into history. It's just 10 cents a day and it means the world to me and the show. You will get to witness Rome's worst defeat since Hannibal brought the Republic to its knees at the Battle of Cannae through the eyes of Quintus Sertorius. Versus the Curse of Apollo's Gold, only on Patreon. Thank you for listening to Deep Into History. You can follow me at Deep Into History on Twitter and Instagram to get your daily blast from the past. And as always, my dear friend, take care of yourself. I truly look forward to the next time we go deep.